Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. If you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 21. Uh, We're going to spend some uh, extended time uh, worshiping together at the end of the service. Um, I just want to jump right into the text this morning. Uh, I, I I, I felt like this morning is going to be a bit challenging, but also I think super encouraging as we continue to try and follow Jesus well. So Acts chapter 21, starting in verse one. This is right after Paul and his whole entourage leaves a group of people that that they just had kind of heart-deep connections together. And so in chapter 20, it says, and when we had departed from them and set sail, We came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Uh, Travel in Paul's day uh, was you had a destination that you wanted to get to And then you were at the mercy of the cargo ships that were going where cargo ships need to go most. And so wherever, so he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's his goal. And so uh, he has to kind of piece together his travel by jumping in to different cargo ships that will go to different places and then stop and either unload, sometimes stay for a day or stay for a week. And then there's maybe other ones that you need to jump on. It's, it's actually, I feel like it's similar to air travel today because I've never figured out why to go from San Francisco to Rapid City, halfway across the country, you have to go all the way to Detroit to come back. I don't know how that works, but I think it seems like travel hasn't changed a ton since Paul's day, um, maybe faster and higher. But um, so he is on his way to Jerusalem. Verse four, <clears throat> and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So, so they land in Tyre, which is a huge, a pretty big harbor city. Um, a lot of ships go through the city of Tyre. And the first thing that Paul and all of those with him do is they look for those who follow Jesus in Tyre. Something to kind of make note of is that they, they didn't have accommodation plans in Tyre. They got to Tyre, and what did they do? They looked for the church. They looked for the people of God who followed Jesus, and they, they anticipated that they would be welcome to be with people who they hadn't met yet. And so, it's, and, and not just for like a, a night, it says that we stayed there for a week, and they stayed with those believers in Tyre. And, and so... What's, what's interesting is that as, as just this little brief part, the snippet entire goes, they developed deep connections to the believers entire. Um, re- re- read on with me. Um, 
And so they, so having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So they're staying with a group of believers in, in Tyre. And this group of believers, very specifically, Scripture says, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is revealing something to these believers in Tyre, and they interpret it for Paul saying, Paul, we, we believe you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Now, this is consistent with the message that Paul's been getting all along the way on his way uh, throughout Asia, throughout what's modern day Turkey and through the Mediterranean basin. And what, what's happening is that consistently Paul's getting a message that, that suffering and chains await him in Jerusalem. And this is yet again confirmed by the believers in Tyre where they encourage Paul not to go to Jerusalem. In verse five, it says, when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. So <clears throat> what we see in Tyre and the picture that, that, that Luke paints there is that they have deeply connected with a group of believers in Tyre that they previously didn't have that kind of connection with. They stayed together for a week they worshiped together, they prayed together, they ate together. They probably had conversations late into the night. And now as Paul's leaving, they come with their families and their children and they all go out to the beach where Paul and his, his group is going to get back on this other ship to go to, to Caesarea and on their way to Jerusalem. And they have basically a worship service on the beach together. They pray. I would imagine that they sang. I would imagine that, that they had an incredible time together. There was probably laughing and, and probably some crying and, and probably some final conversations before they left to get on the ship to leave Tyre. Now, what's interesting that, that we are get confronted with and we'll be confronted with this again is a question that we have to raise is this. There's been constant messaging that danger, suffering, hardship, even persecution await Paul in Jerusalem. And now these new deep family believers in Tyre say to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And they heard this through the Spirit. They, they heard the Spirit saying what is awaiting and they tell Paul, look, the Spirit says that there's danger. We don't think you should go. So the question is this, that kind of arises and we kind of have to wrestle with a little bit. Is Paul disobeying the Spirit's warning or his guidance or maybe are the people misunderstanding what the Spirit's saying? Or is there something else at work? So we move on in verse seven. Verse seven, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. 
And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Philip is one of the original deacons in Acts where the apostles were overwhelmed with the amount of work that they had to do. And they decided to, through the Spirit, choose seven men who would actually go and meet the needs of, of, of the widows and of, of food distribution and caring for the, the people, the, the church in Jerusalem and Philip and Stephen. And they were, they were men who, who also preached uh, incredibly. And remember, Stephen was stoned by the Jews in Jerusalem. Philip was out continuing to care for people and proclaim the gospel. And so that's the Philip we're talking about in Caesarea that Paul and his entourage came and stayed with. And it says, they came to Philip, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And then this little thing that Luke includes, which is maybe detail about family, but, but, but kind of flies over a little bit. Uh, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, Philip is a leader in the church in Caesarea by his title and by his gifting. And it says that he had four unmarried daughters who were prophesying. They were prophetesses. And, and, and what's interesting is, is we sometimes can miss the significance of how he describes, Luke describes them. These are four daughters of marriageable age, okay? Yet they're unmarried. And in the culture at that time, women who were of marriageable age and unmarried were of the of low, low social class. Now, women were also in that culture, pretty low class, even if they were married. But women of marriageable age who were unmarried were, were very, very low on kind of the, the, the social and uh, economic and all that kind of pecking order. What's interesting about this is that Luke makes note of them and their station in life and says that they prophesied, which suggests they had some degree or role of leadership in the church in Caesarea. And I think the message that maybe Luke is wanting us to catch is that it does not matter what your station or your, your role or your level in the culture that you live, Jesus has something for you to do and that is not based on your culture's idea of what you have to offer. And that he will work through whom he works through. And so we kind of move on. And it says in verse 10, while we were staying for many days in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he, okay, so Agabus, just to kind of, <laughs> he's like a prophet who's like Old Testament prophety kind of guy. Because in the Old Testament, you see the prophets and you read through the prophets, you see God telling them to do really weird, socially awkward things. Like at one point, God asked one of his prophets to make a model of a city and then be like Godzilla and like walk through it and, and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, weird. And I'm like, it'd be cool to be a prophet, except that you get rejected and, and killed by your own people. So not awesome. But, 
but um, so so Agabus is kind of that prophet in the in the almost old Old Testament like characterization of prophets, where God asks him to do things that are really obvious and clear, but also not direct. So here it says, Agabus comes from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, which seems weird. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and his hands. Again, my, my mind goes to like, how do you bind your own hands? Anyway, and your feet are already bound, so you can't use those. But anyway, he bound his hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So this little like play that Agabus puts on with Paul's belt, do you think anyone was unsure of who Agabus was talking about? I don't think anyone was unsure or uncertain as to who he's talking about. It's obviously Paul that he's talking about. And he says, when you, this is what's waiting for you in Jerusalem. You will be bound. Implicit within that, you will be tortured. You will lose your freedom. You will lose your ability to, I mean, maybe some of the assumptions, you lose your ability to freely proclaim the gospel. It's a sure thing. And, and Agabus's message correlates with the message of the believer, believers in Tyre saying, look, don't go to Jerusalem. And all the things along the way that have been these little warnings from the Holy Spirit of what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Uh, those that Paul is traveling with and the people who've warned Paul through the promptings of the Holy Spirit, these people love and care about Paul. So here's what happens. When we heard this, we and the people, and Luke's including himself in this, that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he's saying, look, I'm part of this group. I'm with them. I'm traveling with Paul. And so this is what we, want, we said to Paul specifically because Agabus comes and he, and he puts on the show and he says, this is what the Lord says. And so he says, <clears throat> he says, we urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. It's like that moment when uh, you tell people uh, that, that you're going somewhere on, on a trip um, that you feel God has led you toward. And they say, well, yeah, but it's, you, you, know, you know what's going on in the world. You know what's happening. I mean, you might want to rethink that. Now, they didn't just do that. Now, now, that's sometimes our own, kind of our own minds and hearts thinking and saying things. But here, these believers actually had solid information through the Holy Spirit of what is going to happen. It's not like it might happen. It's not like, well, Jerusalem's kind of a scary place. Something might happen. No, this was the Holy Spirit saying, this is what's waiting for Paul, period. And so, and so Luke and those with Paul said, don't go to Jerusalem. So Paul responds in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the, Lord, let the will of the Lord be done. 
So are, are, the, are the people right? Like God is clearly revealing what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. And they're saying, look, Paul, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. You can go and proclaim the gospel other places, but wait till the spirit says it's safe. Is Paul being disobedient by being kind of bullheaded and saying, no, I, my whole plan is to go back to Jerusalem and I'm doing it. I don't, and I don't care what is gonna happen to me. I'm going to Jerusalem. Is he, is he being disobedient or rebellious? Or is he actually hearing God and maybe the other people aren't hearing God accurately? I don't, I don't think either of those things are happening, actually. And I, and I think part of the key to understand what's going on is to recognize that the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as a wind that no one knows where he comes from or where he's going. That means that he, does, he is not predictable and he doesn't do the exact same thing in everyone's life. Yes, he guides and helps each person, every single person become more like Jesus, but he does not ask the same things of everyone. The Holy Spirit gives us our assignments and my assignment is not your assignment and your assignment is not my assignment. And here's, here's part of the mess of being part of the people of God is that we love each other and care about each other. And so there's those things that come into play in all of this. But to answer the question of, of, of was Paul, I, I actually listened to a few sermons on Acts chapter 21 on this passage over the last week. And it's interesting. I came across a few pastors who came to the conclusion that Paul was being disobedient and, uh, and he was being bullheaded. But their conclusion was that God can still use our, uh, our unwillingness to, do, to obey for his greater good. I don't think that's true. I think that might come from a predisposition of misunderstanding what mission Jesus calls his followers into. Here's, here's how I would answer Paul, Paul's dilemma. Was, was Paul hearing the Holy Spirit? I'll go back to Acts chapter 15, or Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine is where uh, it comes right after Saul was interrupted by Jesus on his trip to Damascus to arrest, persecute, and maybe even kill those who follow Jesus. And so we all remember the story and Saul's on his way, he gets blinded, he gets taken to Damascus and he's waiting in a house, he can't see and God again gives him further information in Damascus through another prophet named Ananias. And in Acts 9 in verse 15, we, we catch what God said to Ananias. But here's what happens is God comes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus and I want you to talk to him about me. I want you to, I want you to through my power, I want you to do a miraculous healing of his sight. And then I want you to speak with him. And Ananias says, oh, wait a second, God. I know the reputation of Paul of Saul. He is not a good guy. He literally came to Damascus to either arrest, beat, or kill me. Like that's literally why he was coming to Damascus. I'm one of your prophets. So I don't think it's a good plan for me to go and talk with him. 
And then God says this in verse 15 in chapter nine. He says, but the Lord said to him, and I want you to hear what he says. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What does, Paul, what does Paul say to the believers in Caesarea? He says, I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for what? For the name of Jesus Christ. Paul basically repeats exactly what God said to Ananias. When Paul was in Damascus, and when Ananias came to him, God said to Ananias, I will show Paul how he must suffer for my name. From the moment Paul saw Jesus and became a follower of Jesus, he knew and continued to be reinforced that his, the cost for following Jesus would be suffering. And that message continues to be, through the Spirit, reconfirmed in Paul's life. In Tyre, when the Spirit said through the believers in Tyre, hey, Paul, suffering awaits you in Jerusalem. Through Agabus, who says, Paul, suffering awaits you in Jerusalem. Through the rest of the believers who are traveling with him, Paul, suffering awaits you in Jerusalem. But, but see, it gets kind of messy because when we care about people, we don't want them, we don't want to see them suffer, do we? We, we, we really want them to be, be okay and be safe and, and, and we want them to be, be good, but it's hard. You see, I, I think one of the problems for me, and I think for maybe us, because we've grown up in a similar context, is that we have been prepared for success in our lives, but not for suffering. Think about our culture. Our culture prepares everyone to be successful. In the church, we prepare people to be successful. When do we prepare people to suffer? In a lot of ways, we feel like, well, that's God's job. If he wants to prepare me for suffering, he'll do that. But I'm not gonna like take a suffering 101 course And I think that the, the idea that, 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 they're, that the believers, they care about Paul and they don't want to see him suffer. But Paul also knows that his assignment is to go to those in Jerusalem and that will be the conduit that takes him to the rest of the Gentiles and to kings through Israel. And here's the thing, it was okay for the believers to be concerned and care about Paul. They weren't doing anything wrong. They were accurately giving Paul the message that the Spirit was giving, yet they were also saying, we don't want to see that happen to you. But here's what happens. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, I think that we can take this in, in one of two ways, maybe more ways, but for me, like one of two ways. Sometimes when we say, well, let the will of the Lord be done, it's kind of like, you know what? I've done everything I can do. You're not listening to me. Obviously, there's something wrong with your brain. 
And so let the Lord's will be done. It's on him, not me. I've warned you, whatever happens is all on you. And eventually when it does, I'll just be kind of like, I may or may not say I told you so, but that's kind of how it's gonna work out. And the Lord's will be done. Like you're, you're his responsibility. Like we, sometimes we, we go with the Lord's will that way. I don't think that's what the believers were doing in Caesarea. I think the context of the Lord's will be done was this, that they said, you know what, Paul? I don't know that it matters that what you say you need to do is the thing that God wants you to do, or if what we're saying don't go is the thing that God wants. Because we are gonna recognize that we are entrusting you to the God who created everything we see the God who is sovereign, Jesus, who is reigning king in heaven and will be glorified by you and by us. So we are entrusting you to the Lord's will that you will listen and follow and whatever happens, that it will bring glory to God and grow his kingdom in the best way possible. So we don't really care who's right and who's wrong. What we care is that the Lord's will be done. And if that means that you go and these things happen to you and you suffer and that's the Lord's will, then we are behind it. And if it means that you go and we were right, then we are gonna be there to continue to do the Lord's will as best we can. And so it is this entrusting of you and myself to Jesus and that he not only loves us, but leads us and brings justice through us and even calls us into suffering. The rest of the passage it says, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. I, I wonder about that, Sabin. And some of the disciples from uh, from. Uh, from that city came with us. I wonder if some of them were like, man, I'm, I'm going, I, need, I wanna see what happens. I'm, I'm kind of an adventurer. Or some of them were like, Lord's will be done, but I think the Lord's will is for me to be right here. <laughs> and here's the thing, both of those decisions are decisions, can be decisions out of faith and obedience. Because sometimes God calls us to go to somewhere that he's already told us will go poorly. And sometimes we want to go there and God says, but you need to stay. And as much as we want to go, God says, nope, this is where I want you right now. The common denominator between those two things is that both of those people are denying themselves and following Jesus. And, and, so, and so here we have here we have going back to that question of, of what, is, what does this look like? And, and so here's the question that, that, that hit me is, is this. Is suffering and even dying for Jesus something that is describing Paul's journey or is it prescriptive of anyone who wants to follow Jesus? Do you see what the question is? Is what we're looking at here, is it just describing, this is what happened to Paul. Or is it prescriptive saying this is actually an example of how everyone who follows me will have to live? And I think to answer that question, 
we need to look at what Jesus actually says about following himself. Because I can't just make up an answer to that and say, well, you know, I, I think it's more descriptive of Paul or, or I think everyone needs to like run towards danger. No, let's, let's see what Jesus actually says about what it is to follow him. So in Luke chapter nine, and I'm just gonna look at a couple, a couple passages in Luke. You go ahead and read the gospels and see what Jesus says about following him. Luke chapter nine, verse 21 and Jesus is, is speaking just to the 12, to his disciples in this, in this passage. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the son of man must suffer, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus defines for the disciples. He says, this is how you are my disciple. This is how you follow me. I'm gonna suffer. And that's not a wrong thing. I mean, is it unjust? Yes. But it's obedience. And he says, what you need to do is deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll keep it. But if you keep your life, you will most definitely lose it. In, in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus now is talking to a large crowd of people. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to the great crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he talked, he gives this example of, of how foolish it is to not consider the cost before you do something. And then jumping down toward verse 33, he says this, he says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So a window from Jesus into what it means to follow him. So reading that, first of all, I think Jesus needs to hire a consulting firm to help with his marketing. Because I don't know that this message will result in a lot of, a lot of members in his club. Um, like how many products have you bought that the advertisement is, this will make your life worse. Or this could wreck your family. Like we, we got, we didn't know this. Like it was funny because uh, we, when Sherry and I first moved to South Dakota, um, we were at Walmart and there was this pickup, old pickup truck with a bunch of puppies in the back. And Sherry was like, look at these puppies. And we learned some valuable lessons at that moment. And I was like, yeah. And it felt a little bit like the Genesis narrative of the woman being like, look at this. But anyway, um, <laughs> that was such a bad idea of my, on my part. <laughs> right there but um <laughs> so <laughs> i'm trying to get out of this uh so so we we <laughs> i repent and so <laughs> so we get this puppy which is like a, a, a like a high like a, a a mutt type dog of a blue healer and australian cattle dog um which wrecked our life 
for the duration that we had. And we ended up trying to give it to like a rancher in South Dakota and they didn't even want him. I mean, he's for them, but he didn't want him. And so we took him somewhere and hopefully he was fine. But anyway, um, <laughs> we read in this book about like this book that was titled Before You Buy a Dog, after we bought a dog, after we got a free dog. And in the book, it said about those dogs, it said, this dog will ruin a perfectly happy family if you're not ready. We're like, wow, if only we had known this earlier. <laughs> like we would not have gotten the dog. But that's like what Jesus is saying here. You will lose your life if you follow me. And, and so here's, I think, the answer to the question. According to Jesus, following him or discipleship is no less than surrendering everything I am, everything I have, and everything I do. So back to the question, is suffering or dying for Jesus' sake something that is descriptive of Paul's journey, or is it prescriptive of anyone who would follow Jesus? I think we have our answer. Jesus told his disciples and he told the crowds. And Jesus is telling us today. Now, I want to make a really important clarification here. Sometimes God's will includes going toward clearly visible suffering, pain, danger, and hardship. And sometimes it doesn't. In Acts 16, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That was an example of God moving Paul and his group around the danger. So sometimes the Spirit asks us to step into something we know is going to go poorly. And other times he says, I want you to wait here. Both of those things are obedience. When the Holy Spirit warns that something is going to go wrong, it's not necessarily the case that he is saying not to go. And I think it's a little simplistic to just say, well, I'm just going to see if God has an open door or closed door. I would say what, what Paul kept hearing from the believers around him was that, hey, this is a closed door. Don't go to Jerusalem. But he went anyway. Like using that method, he probably wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. And that he would have disobeyed. See, following the Spirit is much more than just looking for an open or closed door. It's actually listening and obeying the hard or easy things he's calling us to do. Warnings from God may be more about setting our expectations than about our decisions. Warnings can be sobering preparation for what God is directing you to endure. He wants us to understand that this will be worth it. The problem is when we don't understand what it means to follow Jesus or be his disciples, we assume more often that safety and wisdom equals obedience. See, God's will is being completely aligned with the person of Jesus. I remember um, just a few months ago when Allison, a week before Allison went to Haiti for a month to kind of, see if that's where God wants her to be, serving him. The week before she went, a young lady, single woman in Haiti, about her age, was kidnapped. And I remember having conversations with people saying, you know, is she still going? And this just happened. This is clear, clearly a bad idea. 
And my, my response to that is, is this. It is better to be obedient and live a short life than it is to be disobedient and die of old age. And sometimes that means going somewhere that there is clear and present danger. And sometimes that means the hard task of not going where you really want to go. I, I imagine, I imagine in Tyre on the beach when Paul and the group went to get on the ship and all the families came with him. I imagine that as they prayed there, they had that worship service. I imagine they sang. I imagine they gave testimony. I imagine some people pulled Paul aside and said, hey, you remember how we told you not to go to Jerusalem? You're, you're gonna go, aren't you? Paul's like, yeah, I'm gonna go. They probably had a hard time with that. And, but I guarantee you, even though the text doesn't say this, I promise you that on the beach that day when they were gonna get on the ship and leave Tyre, I guarantee you that somebody, I don't know if it was Paul or somebody, had some bread and some wine and they said, this might be our last time together. But we're gonna remember what Jesus did. And Paul, whatever you decide to do and whatever comes for us or you, we're gonna remember that Jesus went before us. And so I would guess that somebody in that group took the bread, just like we're gonna do right now, and broke the bread and said, you know, whatever awaits Paul in Jerusalem can't be worse than what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem. Whatever you endure in Jerusalem, Paul, remember that Jesus went before and his body was broken for you so that you can preach the gospel under all circumstances. He probably said, let's take and eat the bread together. And then they probably passed the cup. And in that group of people on the beach, there were people who had shed blood because they were followers of Jesus. Paul, people in his entourage. I bet people in Tyre had been rejected by their families and had shed literal blood for Jesus. So this, this cup represents the blood that Jesus shed for us, that not only paid for our sins, but covers us, gives us power to proclaim the gospel and go to places like Jerusalem, even though the Spirit's warned that it is a dangerous place. So let's take this drink together before you leave on this journey. We're gonna to worship together. And as I've gotten more involved with the global church in places in this, on this planet that don't have Jesus, things that happen far away from me have felt much more weighty and significant. What's going on in Israel is tragic. 
And so often we feel like there's nothing we can do. I was talking to a friend this week and I said, I think the most powerful thing we can do, the weapons that God has given us to fight on behalf of people who are far from God, who are being hurt and abused, is that we can worship. Because when we worship, God hears us and we proclaim his sovereignty, his justice, his grace, his love, his patience, his kindness, and he acts. And so, so often it's easy to come to church and worship together for ourselves. We worship in a context of whether or not we like the song that we just sang, whether or not we like the instruments that played, whether or not we like the environment that we're sitting in. This morning, I wanna ask you to worship. For the kids who are hostages right now, I want us to worship for them on their behalf. I want us this morning to worship for the salvation of Hamas. Worship so that God would awaken them in dreams and visions that Jesus is King that we would worship today for the Israelis and the Jews who are far from God, but have his revelation in front of them. I want us to worship today on behalf of others so that God acts. That's the heart of worship. It's not for you, it's not for me. It's for God so that he acts in his character in this world. So let's worship this morning. Unabandoned worship on behalf of those who cannot worship for themselves. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.